Well, good evening, everyone. It is time for us to begin. That's our opening bell, I think, right? Good to see you here tonight. And tonight we're going to begin our series on uh, the prodigal family reunion. And uh, it's tonight we're going to spend some time in, in the introduction and, uh, and then we'll give you some background and then we'll get into the prodigal themselves. But it ought to be a fun study. I'm looking forward to it. Let's go to God in prayer, please. Holy Father, magnificent and mighty, thank you for allowing us today to be here to study your word. Lord God, there have been so many events throughout the day and the days past, sickness and sorrow and suffering and struggling, so many temptations and devastation. You know all things, Lord God, but in all these things we we trust in you. As Jeremiah said that everything's new in the morning. We look forward, Lord God, to our service to you and it will be your will another day honor your name. Please open our hearts, our minds to understand your word this evening. In Jesus' name we pray and thank you to be that will. Amen. Luke chapter 15, please, just for a moment. So Jesus is teaching the family prodigal reunion. We think about prodigal. I'm going to get into the prodigal really a little bit later, but, um, or, you know, maybe a couple lessons in the idea of the prodigal. But, but what Jesus is beginning to do is to challenge the way if we were to put ourselves back in their day, challenge the way we think. Right? And, and that's, that was the problem. The problem was, how are you thinking? What do you think about these important subject matters of life? So he's traveling down south, and he, he sends his, uh, his disciples ahead of him, and they're preparing everyone uh, for the way. And uh, as he comes in to teach, verse 2 opens us up with what Jesus is really, really getting at. Uh, both the Pharisee and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. How do we think? It goes on. It continues. Chapter 15, 16. I want to go to chapter 18, 17 and 18, where he's telling these parables, parable after parable after parable. And we're going to go backwards. We're going to spend a lot of time in chapter 14 to set our, our context up. But challenge them, challenging them in the way they think, the way you think about money. God wants us to rethink this, right? Going back, if we, again, if we're living in this day, he wants them to think about and rethink about how you handle conflict. How do you do that? What should you do? You know, um, he's challenging them in the parables, uh, teaching them that instead of, instead of greed, there must be this transformation. He's challenging them in the thoughts of, of, instead of anger, I want you to do something. I want you to forgive. Right? He's challenging them in so many ways. And he does things like, um, you know, in, the, in these chapters 14 through 18, uh, Zacchaeus. He says, come on down, I'm going to be with you tonight. Zacchaeus? You can't stay with Zacchaeus. Why not? It's a challenge. And then remember there was a woman that... Um, she came and she, she wiped uh, his feet with her hair and the tears. And they were saying, you know, if he knows what kind of woman that is, right? He was challenging them. And then even over in the, the account in John chapter 4, uh, where he challenged them in that he's with a woman who's from Samaria. 
And the woman herself says, you know, you Jews, you don't even talk to Samaritans. I mean, you, you know, we're like dogs to you, the Syrophician woman. And Jesus does something amazing in John 4. He asks a woman for a cup of water. Well, you know, he's liberating women, right? He's liberating. And then he doesn't just ask a woman. He asks a Gentile woman. And then you know what he does? And I think that is indicated in the text. He drinks out of her cup. You talk about liberation. Yeah, he's liberating. He's, he's, he's challenging the issues that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians were struggling with. And chapter 18, he really gives us this, this parable in verse 9 about the publican. And I want to read this prayer for just a moment. And I want to show you how confused. Maybe you weren't confused, but I was really confused when I read this for the very first time. Verse 9. And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. See, I I didn't catch the verse 9. I just caught the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And I didn't see the error in the prayer because I didn't see him as exalting himself. I saw him as showing gratitude. But it wasn't gratitude because the context is they were trusting in themselves. They viewed themselves to be righteous. And we got to think about that. Jesus is challenging. How do we think? How are we thinking about life and about righteousness and about, about salvation and about mercy and about grace? How are we really truly in our hearts thinking about ourselves. That's the challenge. Okay? And this is the challenge that Jesus is bringing to the hearts of humanity. I want to go way back to Psalm just for a moment. Chapter 19. Chapter 19. When you think of the prayer um, of the publican, I mean, we, we have the caption. It says, they trusted in themselves to be righteous. But have you ever, maybe don't raise your hand, but have you ever prayed like that? Oh God, I'm so glad I'm not like them. Have you ever said that? I sure am glad I'm not like them. Hmm. I think we all probably have. Maybe. Jesus says, I want to challenge that way of thinking. I want you to think about what you're saying. Right? And and, then later on, he's going to teach us another parable to think about what we're really doing and think about what we're really saying. And so, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse... um, 12 and following, it talks about the Word of God being spiritually appraised, right? And you gotta, you look at the Word of God and it's, it's different. It's a unique book. It's very, very divine. Um, very different in comparison to any other book that we might read, uh, anywhere else. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless 
and I should be acquitted of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the heart of my meditation, excuse me, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Okay. Rethinking things. The law of God, the mercy of God. God is the judge. How can I be acquitted? How can I, and that's what I'm looking for, right? Got to rethink. We have to rethink a lot. So now we're going to go to Luke chapter 14, and we're going to spend the rest, probably the majority of this class, in Luke chapter 14. They criticized Jesus because Jesus did some really weird things. You know, um, he has dinner uh, parties for people who could never repay him. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Why would you do that? Why would you have a dinner party for someone who can never, ever repay you? I mean, who does that? Even today, who does that today, right? You know, we, we. He says, I, got you, I need you to rethink the way you're thinking. And then he, 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 he shows everyone the kingdom of God. And he says, the kingdom of God is for everyone. Everyone? You mean every? Yeah, it's for so, so think about this for a moment. What if, what if someone, um, I mean, let me, they were smelly and dirty and, and they came to worship on Sunday and they sat right next to you. And, and the, the, the stench, it, it bothered you and would it affect your worship? But Jesus would say, worship is for everyone. The church is for everyone. Yeah, but Jesus, I couldn't get my mind focused because... So Jesus went to these dinner parties with these people that were dirty spiritually. And everyone was dirty physically. Remember he talked to Simon and he said, you know, you never even washed my feet, right? And he goes on to talk about things that Simon didn't do. He's setting up this this um, amazing uh, understanding when, he get to, when we get to the prodigal. Um, to make them think opposite of what they have normally thought. To make them change their, their view and their understanding of really what it is that God wants us to understand. That's what God is doing. So, alright, now we're going to Luke 14, and uh, we're going to start at verse 1. And we're going to look through some of these parables or teachings of Jesus. Luke 14, beginning at verse 1. We'll read the verse 6. And it came about when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, that they were watching him closely. Why were they watching Jesus? What were they trying to do? What are they looking for right now? An opportunity to kill him, right? And they want to get rid of him. They don't like him because they don't like this kind of teaching. Don't tell us to think differently. We're so used to this, this, this common way of thinking, this common thought. And uh, verse 2, and there in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent, and he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out of the, on a Sabbath? And they could make no reply on this, what was he, What do you think? What is? What do you think the main message is here, in verses one through six? Is there a main message? 
Do you think it's fair to say that as humans, some humans treat their animals and have in the past, the history of mankind, have treated animals as more valuable than humans? Yeah, right? I should have brought some signs. I could just post them show you. Do you think they had the same issue? Of course. You know, if a man had fallen into a pit that was a Gentile, right? Or maybe a, a Jew that wasn't well-liked. They'd have to think about it. Do I get him out of the pit? It is the Sabbath day, by the way. Do no work on the Sabbath. But if an ox falls in there, or your, you know, goat or sheep, get him out immediately, right? He says, are you really thinking about this? What do you think is more valuable to God? The ox, the lamb, or the human being? See the struggle? Right? We See, this is not a new struggle. This has been a struggle in the mind of humanity for a very long time. Maybe for, I don't know how long, but forever. It's been there forever. And so he's teaching them to learn compassion. He said that in other ways throughout other parables. But he's teaching them to learn compassion. Okay, the next one, verse 7 through 11. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they were picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both shall come and say to you, Give place to this man. And then, in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table. You see his point? Right? Humility. Right? If, you're, if you become arrogant, if you put yourself on a, on a pedestal, you're going to be humble. But if you humble yourself, you can't help but to go up. <laughs> but who wants to be the servant? You have a chance to be the king or the servant. Who chooses the servant? Jesus did, didn't he? Philippians 2. He was the king, but he chose. God chose to be the servant. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, rethink that in your own mind. Would you have come as a servant? Absolutely not. Not if I'm God. But he chose to be a servant. Jesus says, I need you to rethink these things through. I need you to rethink the way that you're thinking about life. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, the next, the next thought here. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed since you do not, they do not have the means to pay you for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. 
Yeah, that's a long way off, though, Lord. Right? Help the poor. The main message. Help the poor. Really? Yeah, but <laughs> what's in it for me? <laughs> right? Jesus says, I want you to think differently about things in life. All of this is leading the hearts as the disciples are moving, you know, down through Shechem and, and, and you know, all the places from the north down south. And he's, he's teaching them and teaching them. And, and the disciples are listening to Jesus teach. And he's trying to get them prepared in their heart for this message that's about to come because it's a big one. It's huge. Right? And then really we're going to focus more on, on the older brother because that's the scary one. That, that's the blindsided one. Not that he was blindsided, but that's the one that we least think about. That's the one that's in most of the churches today, unfortunately. The prodigal, his sins are evident. It's obvious what he did. But it's that other one. That's the issue. He's getting them ready. He's thinking, he's challenging them to think a little differently about life. Okay? Look at verse uh, 16. The parable of the dinner. There's another one. But he said to them, A certain man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And by the way, that was the only one that was excusable, right? Because, you know, anyway. And the slave came back and reported to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring here the poor and the cripple and the blind and the lame. Who, who wouldn't come to the, to the invited, you know, the invitation of heaven? Scary, huh? See, the righteous don't need an invitation to heaven. We, um, we already have it in the bag. The righteous people didn't come. They had things to do. They were too busy. But these other folks... Verse, uh, verse 22 and following, they, they, they had a reason to be there. And they came. Are you thinking about your spiritual life as much or as often as God requires it? You see the question? This is the question that, that Jesus is trying to get an answer to through these parables. Are you really thinking about your spiritual life in every decision you make, in everything that you do, in everything that you say, because the kingdom of heaven is near? Or am I just casually floating along in life and just dealing with things as they come? Told another one, verse 28. The disciples attested here in verse 25 through 27, you know, saying you've got to carry your cross if you're going to follow Jesus. And I want to jump. Not that that's not important. We'll come back to that thought. Verse 28. 
But which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who observe, it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. All right, spirituality. Are you really thinking about calculating your every day? Pretty amazing, right? Now, I want you to think about that in light of Jesus Christ. Would you say that Jesus calculated every move that he made or did he just kind of roll with the punches? What do you think? What was that? He calculated it, didn't he? Even on the cross. That was one of the reasons, if you will, that, you know, they offered him uh, the, the mirror and the hyssop and things. He had to stay sharp because he had to fulfill every prophecy. He calculated every single move. Would that wear us out to do that? It would, wouldn't it? Is it worth it? Because, see, that's the question. That's the question. Are you calculating your every move to the very best of your ability? That's why he says in verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You've got to pace yourself. Right? You've got to carry the cross. You've got to figure out how much that, that beam weighs first. And once you figure out how much that beam weighs, you've got to figure out where you want to pick it up for leverage. And you've got to think about how far you can go before you need to take a break, set it down, and pick it up again. I mean, carrying the cross is a load that each one of us must bear. So he says, men and women, we don't do this. We don't, we don't decide to, to build something or do something in this life without first calculating every move. Can I afford this? Now, what's it going to cost me? How many years are to pay for this? All the things that we do that come to self, what about our relationship with God? See, that's where we get into the prodigal. Didn't calculate it. The older brother didn't calculate it. We're, we're going to come. We're going to get there. Verse 31. Well, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000 men? Or else... While the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for peace. Makes sense. Right? To calculate it out. All right. So that's kind of the setup. He's going around chapter 14. You go back and read chapter 14. He's, he's, he's getting their minds in that mode of thinking to where he's saying, I need you to think things out a little differently than you had. Well, maybe a whole lot differently than the way you have in the past. In their minds right now, the brain is turning and turning and turning. And then chapter 15, they're turning. And, oh, and he encounters in verse 1 the, the tax collectors and, and they come together. And the, the Bible says, Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. What, what's, the, what's the problem with that verse? If you were a Pharisee or you were a scribe, what is the problem with that verse? They're not worthy. Tax tax collectors, sinners, they're not worthy to be in the midst of Jesus Christ. 
What does that say about me? But I am. <laughs> right? I mean, I may not come out and say it, but if I determine or deem in my mind that they're not worthy and I'm still next to him, I am inevitably saying, but I am worthy. And how does that measure up to God? No one's worthy. But in my mind, I am worthy. Right? And that's the problem. See? So he's trying to get him. I need you to rethink. Even you apostles, I need you to rethink your position. Right? He's trying to get everyone to think differently about life and about maybe the way that we've, um, I guess, just kind of lived haphazardly in our lives and just not really calculating things and not really thinking about things maybe the way that God wants us to. And he says, I want you to start thinking things through a little more carefully. So that's the first problem. Verse 2. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Grumbles. Does anyone's version say anything different other than grumble? To complain? Okay, complain. Hmm. Jesus, who do you think you are? (laughs) Isn't that how we usually complain? Right? You know, don't you realize what you're doing? You're, you're sitting down with these tax collectors and these sinners and you're, eat, and you're a Jew and you're supposed to represent God and how can you represent God and sit with sinners and tax gatherers? And what are you thinking about, Jesus? They complain, they grumble. That reminds us of the Old Testament when Israel grumbled. We might say, I'm not going to grumble to God, but no, it was very clear. They, were, they knew who Jesus was. They were grumbling to God. Attitudes haven't changed. Back in the book of Exodus, how many times did they grumble? Give us water. Give us meat. Why'd you bring us out here? What are you doing? You know, <laughs> they grumbled and grumbled and grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. And God could never do enough or give them enough. I mean, enough was just not enough. They could never get enough. They grumbled and they grumbled and they grumbled and grumbled. Now here comes... The Son of God, whom they know, is the Son of God. There's no question about it. And they're looking at Jesus and saying, really? Have you thought this through? Do you really know what you're doing here? Why are you even here? Think about this. Think about the passage. Think about where Jesus is going. Think about what he's dealing with in this in this chapter. So he says, I want you to rethink something. And I want to go down to verse verse um, verse 3. So he told them this parable. Saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together all his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. First problem with that is, <laughs> it's only one, I've got a hundred. Ninety-nine sheep over here, and one's gone. So, first of all, first question, do I waste my time to go and get the one? Or do I just say, you know, made their choice. That, that sheep made his decision to go over there by the wolf, and I'm not going to risk my life for one sheep when I have 99 left. Would you go after the one? That's the first question. Right? And we know God would. God teaches us that in this in this parable, but would I go after the one sheep? 
How important is one sheep? Just as important as 99. I mean, in the mind of God. Maybe, again, he's trying to make us think differently about everything. One sheep to God is just as important as 99. Okay, got it. Um, Then he says, heaven rejoices when the one sheep returns. But it's just one sheep. What's the point? What's the point of rejoicing over one sheep when you have 99 already here? We're already rejoicing. We're already having a good time. And so I want you to think differently about things from the way you used to think. Verse 7. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. Second question. Would, would you go to the party? It's just one coin, brother. <laughs> okay. You found one coin. You had ten. You lost one. You still have nine left. Is it really worth my gas to come over to rejoice with you because you found one coin? Really? You see, you see the challenge? There are a lot of challenges in here that Jesus Christ is bringing uh, right to the forefront. And then, the, and then comes the biggest challenge so far. The biggest challenge is, now that you know this, are you willing to change? That's, that's the challenge. Because he says to you in verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Pretty important. Everything he said is critical to our salvation. Everything. Okay. Now the big question. Am I the one? Or am I the 99? How would you answer that? All right, Jesus, I get it now. Okay, so am I the one who went astray... Or am I the 99 righteous who are doing things right? And I know God's, God counts me as nine, God counts me on this side. So I'm not on that side. I'm definitely on this side. Remember the prayer? Which one am I? I'm sure glad I'm not like that one. Or am I the one saying, Oh God, I, I can't even look to heaven when I pray to you. Which one am I? Or am I in the middle? I'm not really ready to repent yet because I'm more concerned about what the scribes and Pharisees are going to think about me. So I'm not going to repent, not yet. Or, or am I on the other side where I'm saying, you know, I'm not going to repent because I don't have to repent. I have nothing to repent of. Are you, you catching it? It's not just reading the prodigal son, brethren. It's, it's what Jesus is trying to teach us. It's the lesson that is very impactful for every generation of people from the beginning all the way until today. 
And the big story of the prodigal son, as he's, if you will, Jesus is teaching and he's getting to the mountaintop and he gets to the mountaintop and you figure it out and you go, what is the true story of the prodigal son? Lostness. People are dying lost. In the house, members of the church, and out of the house, people that are not members of the church. I know I'm a member of the church, so I know I'm not on that side. So I'm good, right? I'm a member of the church, and so I don't have to worry about being lost. I'm a member of the church. I'm good. And I'm here tonight. I'm I'm good. And then Jesus might ask the question, what's your heart like? The stuff that I can't, a human cannot see. What's in your heart? What's your heart like? What's inside of there? Well, what do you mean, Jesus? Now you're getting really personal, Jesus. That's what God does. What's your heart like? Really and truly, what is your attitude like? Okay, so let's leave the parables. Let's, let's step to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And let's, let's get a good, clear understanding of lostness. Because that is a you know, if that even is a word, that is a term, an idea that almost doesn't exist today. I mean, that's why most, most folks don't want to hear, um, you know, sermons, you know, about the loss or about doctrine or about denominationalism or about just, you know, just lostness. We just don't want to hear that anymore. You know, um, we don't even want to think about it. And so, I mean, you know, not being too personal, but I mean, all of our Funerals today are all celebrations of life. You know, everybody goes to heaven now, right? No, no one's lost today. Think about that, right? I mean, it's Bible study, and I'm just being honest. I think we're all, we're all going to be honest. It just, just isn't there. I remember preaching a funeral one time, and um, there was an individual that didn't even believe in God, and the family asked me personally, "Can you find some really nice things to say about her and make us feel better?" Well, you know, I'll, you know, this isn't about me, so I, you know, I'll go up there and and I, and I did my best, and I, I I said some things I could find that were nice about her, and now you're happy, but it didn't 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 save her soul, though, did it? I mean, reality is, it didn't save her soul. Right? It doesn't save people's souls just because someone says something nice about us. In fact, this is so serious that when someone asks the question, it comes up often. You know, hypothetically speaking, well, what about someone who's never, ever heard the gospel before? God certainly is not this, you know, mean and cruel God who sends people who've never heard the gospel away into eternal punishment, is he? And we usually say that. Usually you hear that argument about people somewhere else. Like, you know, what about in Africa? What about in India or wherever? What about America? How many people in America have never actually heard the gospel? Now, now watch this. Some of those people are in the house. Think about that for just a moment. Right? Some of those people are in the house. They, they've heard about salvation. And they can repeat the, the plan of salvation. Oh, yeah, you know, hear, believe, repent, confess, and baptize. And that's it. And it's, but it never, it never sinks into, it doesn't sink into the heart. It's not in the heart. 
It's not in the heart. And you can tell by the way that they continue to live their lives. It's not in the heart. It's, it's just regurgitated. I've heard it so many times. Yes, I'm ready. I want to get baptized. And then, but it's, it never, ever really resonates in the heart. I never really heard it. So th- this is what Jesus says. Verse, verse 8. Like, through inspiration, God will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these will pay the penalty of the eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and he marveled at among all who had believed, for our testimony to you was believed. It's kind of sad, isn't it? That's a sad scripture. Is that scripture true? Oh, yeah, I know it's in the Bible, but that doesn't make it true, does it? What does that do to the thought of evangelism? But let's take it one step further. What does that do to my heart? Me first, right? How does that change the way that I think? Am I lost? Am, am I in a lost state when I stand before Jesus? Am I ch- checking the box? Or has this really truly resonated in my heart. Think about that. Because that's what the parable of the prodigal is all about. It's about lost people. It's not about saved people. It's about lost people. And what lost people have to do in order to be saved. You see that? It's about lost people. See, the prodigal son is not really the prodigal son. We gave it that title. It's really, there are two brothers. That's the parable. We put the caption in there. That's not inspired by God. There were two lost brothers. And we're going to talk about those two brothers. And that's what Jesus is really pointing out in his teaching. So Israel, Israel, they were so, it's such a great example for us. Um, that's why God calls us today's Israel. They were so lost, weren't they? How lost were they? Let's think about that for just a moment. Um, so 722 B.C., the Assyrians come down, and they take over uh, the northern kingdom. Ten tribes go into captivity, and you never hear them again. The next thing you know, you hear Judah is now the Israel, when God starts speaking of Israel later. But you never hear of the ten tribes again. They're no longer a a tribe of Israel, if you will. Although there, we know there's still Israel, right? Israelites. Why did God do that? Why did God send Assyria down to not only capture his people, but to punish his people? Why did he do that? Why would God do such a thing to his own people? And then you have books like Hosea. Remember what he said? Was it Lerohamai? You are not my people. What did God say to Moses? Your people, Moses. Your people. 
And then Judah, a few hundred years later, 606 B.C., God sent Babylon down to conquer them, to take off, take everything away, destroy the temple, take all the gold, the silver, everything was taken away. The temple was burned. You read the book of Lamentations, and Jeremiah talks about how awful it was, how terrible it was. Why would God do such a thing to his people? And the reality is that his people were no longer his people because they chose not to be his people because they wouldn't repent. Prodigal son, we call it. Two lost boys, were they willing to repent? That's the question, right? And that's where we're getting to in our, in our text. So what happened to Israel? It started a long time ago, First Samuel chapter 8. You can read that on your own. We don't have time today. That They said to Samuel, give us a king to judge us like all of the other nations. And God said to Samuel, as Samuel became really angry, he said, Samuel, don't be angry. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Israel had not lost a war. I mean, God was their king. And what was wrong with God being the king? Well, we don't really like God because he wants us to be what? Perfect. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He expects too much of us. <laughs> so we don't want him to be our king. We want someone more like us. We kind of want a Jesus more like us. Right? But that's never going to happen. The problem, the problem was Israel, though God gave him this whole list of things the king would do, Israel, the Hebrews, refused to repent and say, you know, we had it all wrong. You're right. The king is going to abuse us and take advantage of us. And we're going to, you know, we're going to follow some man. He's going to lead us astray. We're going to walk away from you, God. We're going to, and we're rejecting you, God. Now we know that. We're sorry for rejecting you, God, by the way that we were thinking. And now that our thinking has been challenged and we understand that we were, we were really off God, we're sorry. Please forgive us. Let us rethink this through. But they didn't repent because they didn't want God. So the question tonight we close off with is, how many of us, or we can individualize it and just say, what about me? Do I actually want God? Not for all the good stuff that we can get, but just God. If there were no indicator that says serving God is going to get you into heaven or refusing God will keep you out of heaven, if there was nothing that said that you would, you know, you get sick if you're serving God, you'll get sick if you're not serving God. If there were nothing in the Bible that says if you live for God, you can go to heaven. In fact, there is no such thing as heaven. And there is no such thing as hell. Would you still want God? If there were no consequences for your actions, none, 
zero consequence. You can do, we can do whatever we want, live in any way that we want to live with no repercussion, with no consequence from God. Everything is just fine when you still want God. If there was nothing to say, if you serve God, you can pray to him, he'll give you hope. And if you're sick, he can make you better. Well, if you don't pray to God, yeah, it doesn't really matter. God really, he does exist, but he really isn't going to favor you if you're his child or not. Everyone gets to pray. Don't worry about it. All is good. Would you want God? Just for who he is. He's the creator. But if he were just the creator, and that's all the Bible said was Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then later on, it says something like, you should serve God. You should love God because God loves you. But there was nothing else in the Bible. Would you want God? That's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to get us to rethink the way that we live our lives. So, Lord willing, we'll continue on with this, with, you know, more of the main thought of the prodigal, uh, a little more background, and then we're going to get right into the lesson. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it very much. Come back, please. <laughs>
Good evening, everyone. We ask that you all come on in and uh, have a seat so we can start our weekly midweek devotional. Mind turning me down just a little bit, scaring myself. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to sing How Great Is Our God. We're going to start with the chorus first and just follow it on the screen. How great is our God, sing with me, how great is our God, all will see how great, how great is our God, the splendor of the King, clothed in majesty. Let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light, and darkness tries to hide, and trembles at his voice, and trembles at his voice. How great is our God! Sing with me, how great is our God, and all will see how great, how great is our God. H-U-H-G stands, and time is in His hands, beginning and the end, beginning and God and three and one, Father, Spirit, Son, the Lion and the Lamb, the Lion and the Lamb. How great is our God, sing with me, how great is our God, and all will see how great Our God, sing with me, how great is our God, and all will see how great, how great is our God. Well, good evening. It's good to have Jay Lee back. He's been under the weather. Well, last night uh, at our men's Bible study, uh, uh, Shay picked out a, uh, several verses that we looked at, and uh, the one that really st- struck with me was uh, we read Psalms 37. And we, we read the complete psalm, but tonight... Uh, I'm just going to read Psalms 37, 1 through 8. It says, Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die. Trust in the Lord and do good. 
Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn and the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath, and do not fret. It leads only to evil. So there's a common word there about fretting. And the word fret means to be in a state of anxiety or worry. And uh, it made me think about what Paul wrote in Philippians, uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, when Paul wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I really love those verses, except for the part in verse 6 where it says, do not be anxious about anything. Uh, for me, it's probably easier said than done. Uh, and you may ask the Lord like I probably have uh, sometimes in my life about, what about all the stuff that's going on in my life that fuel this anxiety? And when we look at all the situations in our lives that cause anxiety, and that can be from family situations, from health issues, from death of a family member or close friend, uh, could be employment issues, uh, and then just those, and then it, we are bombarded by all kinds of newspaper and television media. You know, today, are we facing a global pandemic? What about the huge swings in the stock market? Uh, what about the continued problems in the Middle East? Drug addiction running rampant. Uh, gun violence in our schools, our workplaces, and even in churches. And from these two passages of Scripture, we find out what is necessary in our lives to combat our worries and anxiety. David stated twice in Psalm 37, 1 through 8, that we need to trust in the Lord. And once we learn to trust God in every aspect of our lives, then we can begin to understand what Paul wrote about dealing with our anxiety in the second part of verse 6 and in verse 7 in Philippians 4. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that is the key. That is the key. Uh, there was a story about a preacher who was counseling a man who was really dealing with severe anxiety. And he asked him how he was doing, and the man said, I'm getting anxious about just praying. And uh, and the preacher said, God didn't develop this communication of prayer to to stress you out or cause anxiety. It was to relieve anxiety. And we just need to trust him and put those things in, on his shoulders, and he'll do the heavy lifting for us. But tonight, if you're here and you've had a lot of adversities in your life and 
things are weighing you down, please come forward and let the brothers and sisters here pray with you and for you. All right, Don.